This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by Life Sport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, Life Sport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider Life Sport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at lifesportcoaching.com. Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I'm recording this program just a few days after the latest tragedy to befall our cycling community here in Colorado. We haven't had a very nice spring to this point in Denver. Lots of rain, which is highly unusual, and colder than usual temperatures. This past Sunday was another one of those gloomy, damp days. But as is so often the case, cyclists were out in large numbers, getting some miles in, and doing their best to be ready for whatever events the summer might hold. Two of those people were Mike and Gwen Inglis. Mike and Gwen are well known in the cycling community around town, not just for their prolific accomplishments on two wheels, but also because, by all accounts, they are two of the nicest people you could ever hope to meet. Gwen has a history of not just winning national races on the road, but of selflessly giving of herself to elevate others, both in races and off of the bike as well. That Sunday morning was like so many others. Mike and Gwen were out riding like they always are, but this particular day would end differently and in a way that is all too familiar to me as an emergency physician and unfortunately to all of us as a cycling community. A 29-year-old man in an SUV was driving erratically in the same direction as Mike and Gwen. He was intoxicated on some illicit substance, the details of which have not been made public. At any rate, after almost hitting Mike, he crashed at full speed into Gwen from behind. Mike, a trained paramedic, had the awful experience of seeing his wife hit and then come across her crumpled body, unable to render sufficient aid. She was transported to hospital, where she died soon afterwards. Friends of this podcast, Trini Willerton, if it could be me, and Megan Hotman, the cyclist lawyers, were friends of Gwen and have taken up the cause of memorializing her and ensuring that justice is served. I had the privilege of attending the ghost bike ceremony that Megan organized, and it was incredibly well attended, and as emotional as you would expect when someone as popular as Gwen was the victim being remembered. I did not know Gwen personally, but I don't have to in order to share in the grief and anger that so many in my local cycling community has been feeling these past few days. The senseless murder of a beloved woman in her prime who was guilty of nothing more than doing what she loved most with the person whom she loved most makes it all the more tragic. As cyclists, we continue to be maimed and murdered on the roads because of the heartless and often arrogant actions of motorists who view us as subhuman. And that's not an exaggeration. A recent study from Australia demonstrated that among motorists who had not ridden a bicycle in the past year, more than half viewed cyclists as subhuman, and that this perception often led to dangerous behaviors, including purposely cutting off or buzzing bicyclists with their motor vehicle. In our climate of hyperpolarized us-versus-them, me-at-all-costs society, these findings are incredibly alarming and of great concern. And yet I continue to find myself at a loss to know how to act in order to bridge the divide. When a motorist thinks nothing of using their vehicle as a weapon to squash a human being that they perceive as no more than an insect, how do we even begin to fix that? 
And is it wise to be on the roads riding our bikes, if that's the case? I honestly don't know what the answer is, and I fear that Gwen will not be the last beautiful person to meet her end in this violent and incredibly meaningless manner. For now, I urge you, find a bicycle advocacy group wherever you live, and reach out to find how you can support them. Go to Trini Willerton's It Could Be Me website and sign up there. And most of all, please, please remember, be careful and be vigilant, because no matter how much we all enjoy the ride, we have to remember that danger is always lurking behind or in front of us at any moment. Ride safe, ride smart, and yes, ride outside, but do so understanding that we are all incredibly vulnerable and life is so very precious and transient. On the show today, for the medical question, I'm taking on a subject that will be undoubtedly familiar to everyone, and that is the benefits of massage. Although it's been around pretty much forever, you might be surprised to learn that there's a paucity of scientific research on whether or not rubbing sore muscles really confers any benefit at all to recovery or to performance. I'm going to review what science there is on the subject, and that's coming up in just a bit. Later, I have a terrifically entertaining conversation with Simon Ward. Simon is an accomplished triathlon coach with numerous awards to his name for coaching and is the host of the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. Simon has a very holistic take on triathlon and coaching, and I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm confident that you will as well, and that's coming up a little bit later. Before that, I want to take a moment to remind you all once again of the benefits of becoming a Patreon supporter of this show. If you enjoy the podcast, for the price of about a cup of coffee per month, you could sign on to be a subscriber and receive access to great bonus content that can be found on my Patreon site, which is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. For the month of May, I'm making a bonus episode free to anyone as a way to let you hear the quality of the kinds of interviews that are usually only available to my supporters. Celine Evans joined me a few episodes ago to discuss nutrition and the keto diet. On this bonus episode, we talk about other nutritional issues, and I hope that you'll have a listen. The URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, I thank you in advance for considering. One of the constants of high-intensity or high-volume endurance training is sore muscles. Putting in good, solid efforts invariably results in fatigue and soreness that, quite frankly, is kind of just the price we all have to pay in order to see improved fitness and performance over time. Well, many of the devices marketed to triathletes, many of which I have discussed on this very show, offer the explicit promise of helping to reduce muscle soreness and allowing for improved recovery and consequently a more rapid return to baseline performance. If you're a longtime listener, then you will know that pneumatic compression garments, creatine, branched chain amino acids, and cold therapy are among just a few of the things that say they can help you in this regard, but have never really been shown in any scientific way to actually be able to do so. Well, for today's episode, I'm going to take a look at the evidence behind the original treatment for sore muscles, and that is plain, old-fashioned massage as in massage by an actual therapist. Now, massage is a booming business these days. There are more than 250 massage therapy schools in the United States alone. And in the first two decades of this century, the number of certified massage therapists has more than doubled to more than 330,000 at the last count. 
Massage has advocated as treatment for more than just muscle soreness related to exercise. Massage has been advocated for the treatment of chronic pain management, for the management of edema or for swelling, and for general relaxation, just to name a few of the indications. But here on the podcast, I'm really just interested in the idea that massage is an effective treatment for sore muscles, and whether or not a massage is really a good way to enhance recovery. In addition, I want to know whether or not a massage prior to an event is a good idea. Well, first, let's consider how massage is supposed to work and why it might be expected to help. Massage has its effectiveness theoretically as a therapy rooted in two principles. The first is that it enhances blood flow to the area being stimulated, and that in doing so, cellular compounds that are related to injury or fatigue are more effectively removed. The second is by lymphatic flushing. By rubbing areas furthest away from the core and massaging towards the heart, the theory is that the limbs and tissues can be flushed, with a decrease of swelling in the periphery and an improvement in circulation because of improved intravascular volume. Both of these are really hard to measure in any rigorous scientific way, and in fact, we could find no research studies that did so. Instead, we found a handful of studies that looked at whether or not massage had effects on performance or recovery, often measured in subjective ways, but occasionally in a more objective fashion. In a systematic review and meta-analysis of the effects of massage on performance and recovery from 2020, the authors didn't find evidence that massage improved strength, jump, sprint, endurance, or fatigue, but that massage was associated with small but statistically significant increases in flexibility and decreases in muscle soreness. Now, as a reminder, statistical significant means that the results were likely truly observed, but in this case, those statistically significant results were clinically not particularly relevant. Now, this was a relatively small meta-analysis, but still, I want to emphasize again that when they looked at various types of athletes, there was no improvement in strength, in jumping performance, sprinting performance, or in endurance, nor fatigue, but maybe some statistically significant increases in flexibility and small decreases in muscle soreness. Now, looking at the individual studies that were pooled in this meta-analysis, runners were shown to not demonstrate any improved performance with massage versus those who did not have massage, and cyclists were shown to do better with active recovery than if they had a massage. In other words, cyclists who would go for a spin-down or some kind of easy ride after a hard effort did better with their recovery than if they had a massage. Massage was not found to affect overall endurance performance in any way, but the data looking at this specific question was kind of poor. Now, the question of whether or not massage is beneficial before an event has also been investigated. In a systematic review from 2018, nine different studies were reviewed that investigated the question of whether or not pre-event massage conferred any benefit on performance. And here the results might surprise you. Though the authors admit that the studies were not robust, there was definitely an indication that massage actually adversely impacted athletes' ability to perform, and the authors concluded that pre-event massage is not advisable. This result is even more believable when you consider a different study that looked at sprinters getting massage as one of four different pre-event treatments, and found again that in those who received a massage, sprint performance was negatively impacted. 
Another form of massage, with which I'm guessing most of my listeners will, like me, have kind of a love-hate relationship, and that is foam rolling. Ah yes, the completely misnamed instrument of torture that we are all occasionally subjected to as a means of, quote, relief, end quote. As a brief aside, at what point did someone decide to call these things foam rollers? I don't know about you, but when I think of the word foam, I generally think light and airy with a spongy texture, not hard as a rock and something that I use to self-inflict untold amounts of pain. Anyways, I digress. The foam roller, believe it or not, there's actually science on the use of this versus massage. And unfortunately, it appears that with this torture device, there may actually be some benefit. In cyclists, an active warm-up combined with foam rolling, was found to be better than active warm-up alone, or any combination of massage. A meta-analysis from 2019 compiled the data from 21 different studies, and among their findings was that rolling prior to exercise was associated with a small but measurable improvement in strength and sprint performance, and that there was a similar effect for recovery after events. Now, in both cases, the results were really trivial, but they were definitely there, So those of you who are fans of foam rolling, do roll on. While those of you who maybe aren't so much of a fan, you can be reassured that the benefit is small enough that the discomfort may not be worth it. So where does all of this leave us? Well, essentially, there simply is not a robust body of evidence out there to really answer the question of just how beneficial massage is for recovery and return to baseline performance. There does seem to be adequate evidence to support eliminating pre-event massage, as this has been shown to negatively impact performance in a meaningful way. But as far as massage after an event that causes soreness, uh, the jury's still out. Still, I think that we need to look at the dearth of evidence and put a little context around the question at hand. First and foremost, there are real psychological benefits to getting a massage. Personally, I make it a habit to go at least once a month, and while I have long known from my own experience that I never really come away from these treatments feeling particularly rejuvenated or totally recovered, I also know that I love that hour of relaxation, and it does wonders for my mental well-being. The point of this segment isn't to say that you shouldn't get massages, but maybe you should do so in tempering your expectations as to what you'll really get out of them. Finally, I think that in the context of so little evidence, it's useful to remember that not everything really needs scientific evidence in order to be proven. Jumping out of a plane with a parachute is a great example. There are no good studies out there to show that it is better to jump out of an airplane with a parachute than to jump without one. But I'm pretty sure that given the choice, we would all take the chute. Lack of evidence be damned. Sometimes we can't do the study or the study just doesn't need to be done. Now, for massage, I think the study actually could be done, and I do think that it would be worth it to do it. But, as I said before, I'm not sure that it would really change the fact that massage confers a lot of benefits outside of recovery and performance. So, I think it's reasonable to continue with whatever your massage habits are, even if there isn't a lot of science to support it. Again, I do think that pre-event massage should be reconsidered, because that definitely seems to be problematic. But otherwise, settle in for some Enya and enjoy the rubdown. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. So 
Simon Ward is a UK-based life coach for triathletes. He's also a level three coach and senior coach education tutor for British Triathlon and UK coach education ambassador for Training Peaks. He's been awarded coach of the year six times by 220 Magazine. With over 25 years experience as a triathlon coach, strength and conditioning specialist, and more recently a nutrition coach, Simon has helped over a thousand athletes to achieve their Ironman goal while balancing training with a healthy lifestyle. But not only is he a coach, he's been a competitive triathlete himself for over 30 years, having completed 17 Ironman races, including the Ironman World Championships in Kona, Norseman Triathlon, and the Marathon des Sables twice. He was part of a record-setting English Channel Swimming Relay Team in 2018. And he practices what he preaches, living a balanced life with the aim to be actively participating in sports for years to come. For the next short while, though, I am thrilled to have him as my guest on the TriDoc Podcast. Welcome, Simon. Thank you, Jeffrey. What a what an introduction! Almost like I wrote that myself. <laughs> Very much so, right? <laughs> well, thanks for being here, Simon. Yeah. It's really a pleasure. I, I really enjoyed uh, our conversation that we had for your program, and I'm looking forward to continuing it here on mine. And I think I want to start with uh, just a little history of how you came to be a triathlon coach so early on in the development of the sport. Yeah, well, I did my first. I am man in 1995, and I wrote an article for a magazine called Ultra Fit and uh, 220, which was a new magazine in the United Kingdom then, uh, asked me if I'd write an article about strength training for triathletes. So that was 1995. Now, uh, that was way before we were all using the internet. And so they said, well, we can pay you, or you can have a little, uh, like a little classified ad in the back. So they paid me 25 pounds for the article. And, and for the other 25 pounds, I got a tiny little sort of four line classified ad that said, if you're interested in triathlon coaching, please, please send me a letter <laughs> or call me. And so I, <laughs> uh, and then that would go in the back of the magazine. And then there was a little sort of flag, po- flag, flag pointing to that from the back of the article. And I started to get people writing letters to me, which, you know, you don't get any more. And, um, yeah, so I started writing triathlon programs for people based on that, that first Ironman and my experiences and knowledge as a personal trainer, but there wasn't any, there wasn't any, certainly wasn't any formal triathlon coaching program here in the UK until about the year 2000. So I was sort of on my own for five years. Um, there weren't many people doing triathlon coaching at that point. And I, I sort of, if you've ever spoken to Joe Friel, he said, you know, he, he was writing triathlon programs and he found out about another coach in Los Angeles. So he got on a plane and flew down to meet him because there were so few of them. Um, I felt a little bit like that. So a little yeah, bit of the pioneer spirit, right? Yeah. That's all right. That's a, it's, it's nice to be at the right place at the right time, especially in, uh, at the birth of a sport in a, in a country where maybe, I guess, things probably got off the ground a little bit later than they did in North America. But in uh, the time that you've been involved in triathlon, how have you seen the sport grow and changed in the United Kingdom? Oh, well, let's see. Let's look at races. So races were probably what we're going to start experiencing in the next few months. Jeffrey, actually, they were, uh, they probably have a hundred to 200 people, uh, that you were in a big field. There was no racking. There was, you know, some guy with a, a pint in one hand and a microphone in the other sort of calling out instructions. You often had to dodge the sheep and the cattle and, uh, and the traffic, um, you finished and had a, had a beer in the pub and everybody went home. So there, there were no real professional productions there and there was no coaching. So we sort of, it was a bit of a suck it and see type approach. And, you know, if you got injured, that obviously didn't work. And so you tried something else. 
Um, there was no triathlon wasn't in the Olympics then. And uh, I don't think we had an Ironman in the UK, not an official one until um, 2001. So we had to go to Europe uh, to do Lanzarote or Rote, which was a Germ- the German Ironman then. And yeah, the Brownleys had only just been born. So that particular bit, bit of sort of world domination that we now have in the UK was only just was only just starting to learn how to walk. <laughs> and and since that time, was it really, you know, you mentioned the Brownleys and obviously everybody today is very familiar with them. Uh, did the did the success of the Brownleys, is that really what tipped popularity of triathlon in the UK or did it come before them? Uh, it was growing, certainly. I, uh, you know, when we talked the other day in, um, in our conversation, you mentioned how when you did your first Ironman, most people weren't doing them. And when I did mine, you know, people would say, uh, you're a triathlete. If you don't want one of those long ones then, because that was all people were interested in. Um, if I fast forward to 2012 and beyond, when you talk about triathlon now, people say, oh, like the Brownleys. So you can see how things have changed. In the interim, triathlon was slow getting going. We had we had 220 magazine that I mentioned, and we had imports of triathlon magazine, and we had some international racing here. In 2000, we had the Olympics. And, and of course, we had two athletes, uh, two male athletes back in the in the 90s, Simon Lessing and Spencer Smith, who were regularly winning world titles and were quite dominant. Simon Lessing was the was the favorite to win in Sydney, but he, he didn't manage that. And but but there was a British Triathlon Association that was developing an Olympic program and in 2001 or two, I think they they developed um, a talent ID program. So the UK was divided into regions, and my business partner Jack and I were asked to look after the northern region. So um, our remit was to find young men and women that could swim and run. And so after a couple of years of looking for people, we found some. We found these two young boys called Brownlee. So um, I, I was right at the inception with Jack of seeing them coming into triathlon, and it started to gain traction. Um, from then and then as they started to come to the fore you know they started appearing on local news and non-triathlon stuff um, once they won the olympic gold medal they become because they were brothers as well so once they won these those olympic medals then triathlon really did it, it was sort of up like that a bit like when you put lactic acid into muscles it's sort of a, a, a an upward inflection and then a huge sort of like um rocket ship taking off and uh, yeah it's um it's been pretty popular ever since so I'd say I'd say it was growing, and the Brownleys then were just you know set the fire going, kind of uh, like uh, throwing gasoline on the fire, and really just uh, yeah. made everybody pay much more attention. Yeah, yeah it had been it had been smoldering until then. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, as you know, you mentioned, of course, uh, the interruption that we've all faced with the the pandemic, and as we come out of it, and hopefully can look forward to racing again this summer. <coughs> fingers crossed. Don't want to, you know, jinx us. Um, what kind of sport? What kind of changes uh, would you like to see, or what kind of changes do you envision that can ensure that we're going to see continued growth and health of the sport going forward? Well. Uh, well, I, I, I do some announcing at a series of races called the Outlaw in the UK. So I um, know the organizers of that race. I've known them since they started it. And so we've had conversations about what races will look like. And they will be different, at least for the first year, I think. They'll be, you know, um, staggered starts on the swim. The races will be a bit longer. So us poor announcers will be at the finish line a bit longer. Uh, Mike Riley will have to go until 3 a.m. instead of midnight. And... Um, there'll be self-service on 
feed stations for a bit. There'll be social distancing. There won't be any congregating around the finish line when you've got your medal and you're swapping war stories, I'm afraid. And there won't be many spectators around at the finish line. But equally, I think because everybody had their optimism and had a dampened last year, um, I know that a lot of the races that are planned for this year are full up. And so there's clearly a, a sort of a groundswell of, of energy waiting to just be unleashed. Um, I yeah, think there's we'll, real pent up demand, right? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think we might see um, some of those big events suffer for a little bit with the with the volume of people that can get through, um, just because of that social distancing. Until we're, we're absolutely certain that this whole thing is under control and behind us, and everybody's vaccinated, and I'm sure we'll get back there eventually. And there may be even be some positive changes. You know, we've we've some of the things we used to do were. Multiple briefings throughout the day in a room. Well, we've we've started doing those by video now, and people like those. We've started um, giving people proper time. So, although Ironman tell us, you know, turn up to rack between uh, eleven and two, nobody ever does. They all just they just know that that's what uh, you know. There's no penalty for turning up late if you want to. But now we are starting to get people to turn up at different times, so it makes it a lot easier for the volunteers. Um. So I think there'll be. Yeah, some I things. agree. I, I I totally agree with you. I want to follow up on that because uh, you know some of the a lot of people want to get back to you know quote unquote normal as soon as possible. And you know you referred to the lack of award ceremonies and the lack of the food tents after the race, and that clearly is going to be something that people will miss and are going to want to get back to. And 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 I I'm all for bringing those things back as soon as possible. Um, I'd love to see award ceremonies done more efficiently and done uh, more in a more timely manner. I mean, I, as somebody who actually, you know, has has gotten to a point where I actually need to stick around for awards, having to wait, you know, finishing a race quickly and then having to wait several hours to get to the awards has always been a rather painful prospect. And I wish they could do something about that. And then for people who want to wait for the roll downs, mm-hmm. I mean, they've got to wait several hours more and, and there's no reason for it to be that way. Ironman could certainly figure out a way to do that more efficiently and in a more timely manner. So I'd love to see that kind of be updated and changed. And I, I, I agree mm-hmm. with you. I think video briefings are a great thing as well. One of the things I know that has been talked about a lot since last summer, certainly here in North America, is means to uh, increase diversity and inclusion uh, within our sport, uh, specifically mm-hmm. yeah. related yeah. to you know racial inclusion, but also inclusion for socioeconomic uh, class because uh, triathlon, let's face it, not an inexpensive sport. Are those kinds of things being discussed in the UK mm-hmm. as well? Yes, they are. Uh, it's always a challenge, isn't it? Because if you go into a, an economically deprived area, you, you, whilst you would like to encourage people there to participate in your sport, I think often they've got a lot more things on their mind than swimming and biking and running. And that one of the biggest one of the biggest limiters is accessibility to a swimming pool. So whilst Leeds is where I live is pretty well catered for. Um, a lot of the time people have got to get on a bus they've got to travel the bus doesn't always go right close to the swimming pool so then they've got to walk um they you know um they may feel they may not have had swimming lessons at school so they've probably got to learn how to swim as well so there's sort of some even if you could encourage those people or they've seen triathlon on the tv and they're interested there's some other barriers that we've got to work out how to get them across as well um but there's definitely some initiatives out there and i and i i agree that um you know, racial diversity and cultural diversity and, you know, even gender diversity is is, um, is something that we need to be working harder at. 
Um, and that, that's something that we should always be doing. I don't think it's just down to the leaders of the sport. I think we could all get involved. You know, if each one of us that was doing triathlon went out and introduced somebody to the sport that wouldn't normally be, then that, that, that might also be a way, you know, why wait for one, why wait for one group of people to find a hundred people? Why don't we all just find one person? Yeah. And the time and, and is maybe, right. And, right. And yeah. And maybe we could mentor them and maybe we could help them with secondhand equipment and helping them get to the swimming pool. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And and like I said, the time is ripe for that because there's been so much interest in uh, getting, you know, onto bikes for people who've never biked before and getting mm-hmm. into running, yeah. you know, people who've been locked down and people who haven't been able to do the things they usually do have taken an interest in the activities that lend themselves to triathlon. And so now's the time to try and bring those people over and get new, new entries into our sport and really uh, improve the health of our sport by having a groundswell of new uh, participants. I couldn't agree more. Uh, so I want to spend, well, uh, well maybe, yeah. maybe just, can I, can I just, just add on something to that, Jeffrey, because, you know, we've we've acknowledged that the swimming is perhaps the limiter, but so maybe multi-sport doesn't have to start out with triathlon for people. It's it's probably a lot easier to get people into something like a duathlon where they just swim and run to start with. And then once we've got them interested in the sport, we can get them involved in triathlon. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 I yeah, I totally agree. Um, I want to spend the rest of the time just talking about your specific approach to coaching because I think it's uh, it, it's refreshing and really interesting. I, I I love the idea that you used to call yourself a triathlon coach, but now you call yourself uh, a performance coach. No, a, a life coach life who coach. happens to yeah a life coach who happens to you know get triathlon uh, triathlon training to people, and uh, you spend your time. Mm-hmm training people how to become high-performance humans. So tell us about, first, what what is a high-performance human? Well, I think we've all, those of us who've done Ironman have probably realized that, that there's been times when we've been so focused on our swim, bike, and run, getting up early, going to the pool, going out late, you know, spending weekends with our mates training, that we've perhaps ignored some other things. You know, we've we perhaps had to keep focusing on work, and we may be, compromise some sleep in order to get up early to go for those sessions and we perhaps are so busy training that we don't pay as much attention to food and perhaps we think that sports nutrition is okay and so we'll just have a um, um, you know a packaged energy bar we perhaps don't pay as much attention to relationships and to our family as we should and so things slide and um, of course then that becomes difficult when you're going out on a long ride and somebody's got to take the children to the swimming club or to, to play football a high-performance human, in my mind, it has the mindfulness to be aware of all the plates that they're spinning. Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to focus on certain things um, in more in more depth at certain points, but they're still mindful of the fact that if, if, like one of those circus entertainers, there's a plate behind us that's wobbling, we need to go and give it some attention until it because it's going to crash on the floor. So maybe that's the relationship with your children or your partner. So you have to go back and spend a bit of time with them. And then, oops, hold on a minute. I'm not pulling my weight at work. So I've got to go back and let my colleagues know that this is a short term thing and I'll pull the, you know, I'll pick up the load for them when it when it's all done. So maybe you take out a goodwill loan that has to, and all loans have to be repaid. And that's the time, you know, you do that when you finish the race. So high performance humans are a mind. I think mindfulness is the key word here. You've got lots of plates of spinning. You know, which ones are the most important ones. You're mindful of where they are and how they're spinning and you give, give them the right amount of attention so they don't clatter and break on the ground. 
Yeah. And I, I've talked for a long time with my athletes about how important it is to make sure that, you know, their training meets, you know, fits into their life as opposed to fitting their life into their training. And yeah. uh, I could hear that that's uh, very much uh, something that you espouse as well. How, you know, how does this fit with an individual who comes to you and says, look, you know, I'm, I'm a busy professional, but I, I want to do an Ironman. Do, do, does that mean that, you know, you have to readjust their goals or does that mean you just have to find a way to have them, you know, maintain their normal life in a way that uh, gets around what they want to accomplish? How do you make that work functionally? I think we have to start off with an adult conversation. And that usually involves doing an audit of their life. Maybe they do that on their own. You know, we've all, we've only, any of us got 168 hours in a week. And we know that uh, some of that is taken up by sleep and should be. So let's say that that's a third of that time is taken up with sleep in an ideal world. And then, you know, probably another 25% will be taken up with work. And then you've got, you can't, there are things you can't let go of. You can't let go of relationships with your family, particularly. Um, so you have to decide what's important. And, and sometimes that conversation involves the question, you know, do you think this is the right time for you to do an Ironman? You know, what's, what's the rush in getting it done next year? Because Ironman's going to be along uh, around a lot longer than most of us. So, um, what, what about if we wait two years until you've got this thing behind you? If, if it's absolutely got to be done, then I'm happy to help people because I think if you leave them on their own, they probably do themselves more harm than if they have some professional help. But again, we have to talk about, well, look, this is like a jigsaw. And when the best jigsaw is one where all the pieces are in the right place. So the pieces that are in the triathlon jigsaw are obviously swim, bite, and run training, but also sleep, nutrition, um, other forms of recovery, um, strength training, mobility, and we can't ignore any of those pieces and favor the others. We've got to balance them all out. So maybe you don't need to do as much swim, biking and running as you think. Maybe actually 10% less swim, biking and running will be enhanced by 10% more mobility work and a little bit of meditation every day. And, you know, maybe we could have a look at how they use their time and find out actually there's a whole load of fluff that they have in their day that that wastes their time just going on social media and watching Netflix that they could swap out for something more productive. So, um, yeah, and, and then obviously if, if they're limited for time, then how do we maximize what they're doing? Well, we maximize that by being better with recovery, by um, eating quality foods rather than rubbish. And, um, you know, maybe using the time where we're in the car or on the bus or on the train to meditate or listen to something that's going to be um, a self-improvement thing rather than, again, rather than just aimlessly wasting time. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's makes a lot of sense. And, and how many times do people, you know, at the end of that adult conversation, turn around and, and just like, you know, look at you with a blank stare and say, yes, but I want to do an Ironman. I would say that it's over the last couple of years since I've been doing my podcast and people that come to me generally have listened to the podcast or read my blogs and so they know where I'm coming from. They've probably already had that conversation with themselves before we talk. Uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Uh, but but like you, Jeffrey, you, you've got enough experience now to know to know what works. And I guess people come to you in the same way they come to me that they trust that you know what works. And so I would hope that they would understand that that you know we have the methods that will give them the best result you know in the long run 
Yeah. And often what I've done uh, in those kinds of conversations is is involve uh, the person's spouse or partner mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, you know, make sure that they're on board as well. Because as I've learned with my own spouse, that uh, if they're not part of the team and they don't know what's to expect, uh, things go sideways very, very quickly. And it's like you said, you know, keeping those plates spinning, if the biggest plate, uh, you know, the the foundation plate, if you will, isn't uh, taken care of, then you're in big trouble. So uh, I think that's the most important wow. thing right there, right? I, I can remember doing a presentation and um, asking everybody in the room that was doing an Ironman that year to put their hand up. And so just about all the rooms went up. And then I said, right, so um, put your hand down if you spoke with your partner before you entered the race. And a few hands went down. I would say that 80% of the hands were still up. So most 80% of those people in there had not told their partner that they were planning on doing an Ironman that year. So you can imagine the conversations when they'd done that and the you know, they said, right. So, um, so darling, I thought for our 25th wedding anniversary, we could go to the Maldives. Oh no, that, co- that clashes with Ironman Germany. Oh, now that's awkward, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, there's no doubt, uh, that, you know, my kids are older now and, and, since I involve them and my wife in the planning of a race season, things are much smoother. I mean, there's still hiccups yeah. along the way, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, a it's a much smoother, uh, journey to getting to the race and, and doing the race and getting through the training when everybody's on board. And I love that anecdote about how many of you spoke to your spouse at the beginning, uh, cause that's, well, that's very true. We've all done it, haven't we? And as you say, we've all learned that life's much smoother when you communicate properly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what are some of the tips that uh, you give your athletes? You know, what are some of the kind of like the main focuses or main points that you'll sort of say, look, you know, if you want to be a high performance human, this is where you need to emphasize. These are the things that you really need. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's less about getting your FTP. It's more about doing X. What would X be? Yeah, well, I really like the philosophy that you focus on the process, not the outcome. You know, so you do the little things that matter every day rather than focusing on a particular result or a particular session. You know, think about and and think long term rather than short term. You know, if you've got more time and space to achieve something, everything will be better. If you're trying to squeeze stuff in in the next few months and you miss a session, that's when panic sets in. So definitely focusing on the process. I think for me sleep is the most important foundational aspect of of any aspect of performance i think we can all um give examples of when we've not been functioning very well when we've had less sleep and how we function much better when we get the right amount of sleep for us so i, I really get them to try and concentrate on sleep um at least getting some consistent bedtimes and and wake times and trying to put into place a decent pre-sleep architecture to enable them to have the best chance of getting sleep because you can't control what sleep you get but you can give yourself the best opportunities to get that sleep i like them to think about their nutrition more most people that i come across say that their nutrition is pretty good but when we when we do a food diary we find out it's average at best and uh, you know and it's they do the major things right, but still people think they can get away with eating cake on every ride, on eating sugar, that it doesn't matter. You know, they're 6% body fat, so they're not going to be diabetic, which we know um, isn't quite true. And um, 
they perhaps then don't arrange stuff in the right way. So they don't get enough protein in the day and it's all back-ended and they don't eat the right sort of carbohydrates and they don't have a right proper diversity of, of, of plants and vegetables. So just some basic stuff like that. And, and the, the fundamental for that one is, is planning, really, planning and preparation to make sure you've got the right food at the right time. And then some of the other little things, def- definitely strength and conditioning and mobility. So mobility first, moving properly, you know, if you can move well and you can get streamlined, you'll be a better swimmer without improving your technique or doing more miles. And the same for running. Um, so being more mobile and then strengthening up those body parts that we know are prone to injury so we can be more consistent. Right? And um, getting the fundamentals right, really. And if we can get the fundamentals right, often everything else will follow on if you're just consistent. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I can't think of a better way to finish, uh, especially the three P's of uh, the process, the planning and the preparation. I think uh, that's uh, really a great way to think about it and something that I emphasize as well. Well, Simon Ward, um, I can't thank you enough for coming and sharing some of uh, your knowledge and wisdom that you've uh, gained through 25 years uh, in the sport of triathlon. We're both long timers, uh, myself 21 years, yourself uh, 25. And uh, it's nice uh, that uh, we can show others that uh, this sport can have longevity and really lead to uh, a good, healthy lifestyle over the long run. So uh, thanks again for being here. Uh, I'm going to include in the show notes all the ways that people can find you, including uh, your very entertaining and informative podcast. Uh, so please, uh, if you're listening, make sure that uh, you check out those show notes so you can find out more about Simon. Uh, Simon, thanks again for joining me on the TriDoc podcast today. It was a real pleasure. You're welcome, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Zankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel, where you can find some new content that was put up there recently about the attendance at triathlon camps. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of getting bonus content by becoming a supporter of the podcast at my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.